By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. And as always, I'm joined by. Adam from adamiangolf.com. We're going to change subjects here a little bit on this one. I was thinking back to one of my favorite songs, the lyric, I believe the children are our future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. Do you know that lyric, Adam? Have you heard that song before? Not at all. I'm thinking of Michael Jackson songs now. Uh, you don't know who Randy Watson is? Uh-uh. No. <laughs> oh, my God. You got to watch Coming Randy to America. Watson. I've got to Google Never seen now. Coming to America. All right. Well, it's a Whitney Houston song originally, but everyone knows Sexual Chocolate from Coming to America. We'll put that on your list of movies you haven't seen before. Sexual Chocolate. <laughs> Sexual Chocolate. In any event, we have James Hong with us. James, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, you tell us a little bit about yourself, James. You're a pretty renowned junior coach at this point. Tell us a little bit about what you do. Well, I'm the Director of Instruction at Harbor Links Golf Course in Port Washington, New York. That's in Long Island. For an exact location, if you imagine where Manhattan is, and then you imagine where Bethpage Black is, we're directly in between the two of them. So if you're on a map, that's where you can pin us. And I've been there now, I believe this is my 18th year there or 19th year there. It's one of the two. Yeah, so basically we have a huge junior program there, oversee most of that, if not all of that. And, you know, I'd say like you were just asking me earlier, but I'd say about 80, 85% of my lessons, my students are juniors. How did you get into the juniors versus the adults? So why, why did you become in that niche? There were a couple of things that happened. One was where I used to work years ago. They used to have some junior camps on the weekends and stuff, and none of the instructors wanted to teach them. 
And I wasn't officially a teacher at, at where I was working, but I had done some teaching at another place. And I said, I'll do them if no one else wants to do them. And I ended up doing them and having a great time with it. And you know, at the time, I was actually the one of the managers at the range that I was working at. And so it was like nice to have some residual income with that. And then eventually a friend of mine who was an instructor, he had a place where he was teaching nearby where I live. And he said, I want you to come and join me. And I, I did. And he was teaching predominantly juniors. And he had a bunch of juniors there that were really good, really good junior players. And, and so I helped him with that. And then he decided he wanted to move to Florida and start a second program down there. So he said, you're in charge of the one up here in New York, and I'll be the one in charge of the one, I'll be in charge of the one in Florida. And then he said, in the wintertime, you can bring the kids down or you could come down for the winter. At that time, I wasn't married, so that was easy for me to do. And that was kind of like the stepping stone for me. And then in a more realistic fashion, 9-11 happened. And that was a situation where we had a relatively busy instructional program at, at the golf course I was working at. And once we experienced 9-11, that came to a dead halt. And pretty much like what we were going through with COVID, we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know what was going on. And so it, it was one of those things where literally for the month of September into October, lesson revenue totaled about $500. And obviously you can't live on that. So I'm trying to think of what can I do? And I already had some juniors and the parents were asking me, can my kids still come? You know, they kind of thought of the golf course as a safe place for their kids, a place they could forget forget about what's going on in the world. And I said, absolutely, come on by. And can they bring a friend? And so that kind of started sparking some things in my mind. And then I started thinking, well, you know what? In these kind of situations, an adult is probably saving as much money as they can. They don't know what's going to go on, but they'll still do as much as they can for their children. And so what I started doing was just saying, hey, junior program, drop your kids off here, right? And basically it is telling the parents, you know, this is a safe place. They can forget things for a couple of hours. I'll take care of them and stuff. And, and that literally exploded. Wow. As soon as the word got out for that, it was like, oh, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. And that was around the time when Tiger was dominating, right? Exactly. Yep. There's no one. Yep. Yeah. It's when I was still a junior. <laughs> mm, me too. Was, yeah. Sort of. No, I wasn't, I wasn't a junior then either. No, you weren't, Adam. Well, in this episode, we realize everyone who listens to the show does not have kids playing golf, but I think there's the first subject I wanted to talk to about James is the state of the junior game. I think there's a lot of stuff that goes on because of people like James, teachers like him who specialize in junior golf organizations like Youth on Course. I've been like really impressed with what's going on at the junior level for the last decade. And I think the future of golf is bright. We always hear that term grow the game and I think it gets misused a lot. And I can't think of anything better to invest in golf's future than getting children in the game and teaching them what it can do for them. So before we get into like best practices, if you have a junior golfer and stuff like that, let's talk a little bit about like, what have you seen in the evolution of junior golf since you started 20 years ago or almost 20 years ago? Yeah, I think the landscape for junior golf has changed dramatically. I think way back in the day used to be if your kid was going to be anything, you'd send them to like Ledbetter Academy or IMG. And so it was either all or nothing. And what you see now is this progression, this development of junior golf. And it's astounding the what's been happening, especially over the last, I'd say, 10 years 
in terms of junior golf development. And I think some of the things you can thank are Operation 36, Op 36, those guys. I've seen them already a couple of times in the last few months, and I, I keep dropping down to my knees and bowing to their their greatness and telling them, you know, you, we all should be thankful to them for what they've done. When you walk around and now what you'll see at golf courses and ranges is you'll see flourishing junior programs. And it's not, and it used to be glorified babysitting where the kids would come, the low pro on the totem pole, the new guy or the new woman, your job is to teach the kids for an hour. You got to watch them. Good luck. Ha ha. The joke's on you. <laughs> and then you basically kicked over a garbage can full of range balls and said, here you go, hit them. And that was it. An hour later, hour and a half later, parents picked them up, brought them to the next camp or whatever it is they were doing. Nowadays, it's a full out developmental program. And I know last month at the PGA show at the PGA Teaching and Coaching Summit, I had said, we are the new gym class. And what I was talking about was how, again, crediting Operation 36, crediting TPI, the TPI Junior Cyclone, it's when I see other programs, meaning other sports, soccer, football, baseball, whatever, when they're doing their junior programs, you don't see them implementing other resources. You don't go to a baseball camp and all of a sudden they're rolling out soccer balls, golf balls, tennis balls. They're just they're only focused on developing their own sports skills. You go to a golf program and you'll see anything from tennis balls, tennis rackets, soccer balls, PVC pipe tools, ropes, everything. You'll see a whole bunch of things put out. You'll see balance pads. You'll see obstacle courses with foam noodles and, and alignment rods sticking in the ground. And you might be spending as much as one third to half of the time, not even touching a club, but just doing a lot of athletic movement development programs. And like I said, we are the new gym class. We're the ones that seem to be spearheading this, like developing athletes first, golfers second, or, or developing whatever sports second. And I, I think that's, that's a credit to us. And we have to keep doing that because in this day and age, education programs are getting cut. The budgets are getting cut. First things that are getting dropped are gym classes. So anything that's athletics getting privatized. So if your kid wants to play lacrosse, they're going to a lacrosse camp, soccer camp, et cetera. Whereas if you're going to a golf camp, like I said, you're doing everything. And it's like, you guys know this, you've seen it a million times where you're trying to show a child something and you say, well, you throw a ball and they're going like, well, I don't know how to throw. So what I'm finding out nowadays is like, if I tell someone, I want you to throw the ball, well, before I'm even teaching them what they're doing in golf, I'm going, this is how you throw a ball. And I'm showing them how to move correctly, how to step with their lead foot, release the ball, you know, how their hips are moving, whatever. And they go like, well, that's the same thing that you're doing in a golf swing. And then now they trans they try to transfer it over to a golf club in their hands. And so I think when you see something like that and that explosion of knowledge, the, the sense of human awareness, human development, how are children learning? At what age are certain developmental stages happening, both mentally as well as physically? And on top of that, now you see instructors really grasping this information, really trying to tackle it and do it on their own. And so it used to be like you would see at some golf course or range, a junior program, like, wow, that's really different. That's unusual. What are they doing over there? Now you go across and everybody looks the same now. And I mean that as a compliment. Are there resources? So I know you're associated with the US kids, you're a top 50 lifetime master teacher there. 
are there more resources for the curriculum available to instructors to, cause you mentioned before, if you were, you know, when we were growing up, this didn't exist. Yep. You had to just get one-on-one lessons and hope you got a good coach. There weren't many camps, stuff like that. Is the access to the information better through these organizations? You mentioned uh, Operation 36. Like, are they giving curriculum to instructors and being like, this is the way we want you to develop? Like, we, we feel these are best practices? Yes, absolutely. You see that through Op 36. You see that through U.S. Kids Golf seminars, certifications for their instructors, level one, level two, level three. And what's amazing is, is that it's stuff that you could literally go back to your course that same day and put it into operation right away. And you see the smiles on the kids' faces. You see the smiles on the parents' faces because they're like, oh my God, my kid was happy for a change. And I think the other thing you'll start to notice is you'll see it in, in the PGA sections across the country. They're not just having teaching summits, teaching and coaching summits or instructional seminars. They're having separate junior golf summits in addition to their teaching summits. Yeah. I've seen the PGA junior league, like at my golf course, it's super popular. Like it's competitive. And I mean, I live not too far from where you teach James and it's a highly competitive thing on Long Island in the New York area. I see the kids get really pumped for it. I saw some, I couldn't quite remember, hopefully you know it. Is it, I think it, it was golf was the only sport that was growing in the United States amongst like high school athletic participation or something like that. Like every, I saw, I remember seeing this, it was like a year or two ago. It looked like everything was in decline except for golf. And everyone was like, really, that's so strange. And I think it has to do with all of this, all of this work that's going on at the junior level. It's really awesome to see, especially that you guys are doing it, not just golf stuff, like all sports combined, because I think that's ultimately what makes you a better golfer. Oh, oh, absolutely. And, and I think especially when we went through this whole pandemic period, golf was the only sport that was allowed to thrive, so to speak. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't go to tennis courts, you couldn't go to soccer camps, you couldn't do anything like that, yet golf courses were open. And, and I remember the day that we were told we could teach. It was June 23rd. <laughs> you were allowed to teach. But the funny thing is, is that when we were told that, the town of North Hempstead notified us about this. They said, you're only allowed to teach juniors. You can't teach adults yet. And I was just like, okay, no problem. And because a lot of what we were concerned about was our summer camps. Can we hold summer camps? So 10 weeks of the summer, we're usually having a camp every week. And so we couldn't hold one that first week, but we started it from the second week on. And my phone, my email box was exploding. As soon as people found out that we, we were going to have summer camps and we were going to practice social distancing, all the rules, it's our summer camps filled up. It was ridiculous how fast it was. I remember, I think it was 94 applications within seven minutes of opening up. Do you feel like there's more instructors like you now who are specializing in, in junior programs? I'm sure you're connecting with people around the country or perhaps the world like this. Do you think there's more of that going on? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm getting more messages from instructors. I'm Whenever I go somewhere, someone will, someone will tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, I follow you on Instagram or Facebook or something. And you know, I just want to thank you and ask you some questions and stuff. And, and there are also established teachers who are now realizing that yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm going to do a little bit more of this stuff. I really like it. And what they're also finding out is, is that a lot of the junior stuff that they were implementing 
for their kids carries over to adults and vice versa. I mean, obviously, you're going to cater the language, the communication skills towards the person, the people that are in front of you. But other than that, there is a carryover in both directions. I mean, Operation 36 is a wonderful program for beginner adults. Can you give us some specifics on like what Operation 36 is, what it does, even some of the information, like how how is it a good program for both kids and initial adults entering the game? It's got a nice outline of development from, it's basically like seeing what the syllabus is like for a school or for a subject. It's like, well, we're going to start at chapter one and we're going to do this and then we're going to test you. And if you pass the test, and and when I say test, I don't mean like, you know, red pen on a, <laughs> on a report card, come see me afterwards kind of stuff. It's basically, can you show proficiency? Do you understand what chipping and putting is? Or if the goal is to, sc- is to learn how to score, we're going to start from, let's say, 20, 25 yards and, you know, par is, let's say, four. How many shots did you get the ball in the hole with? Well, I got it in five. Well, what's that call? That's about, so you, the education there, it starts from in close. But I know sometimes what happens is, is that when you, when you say, well, we start with putting and then chipping, it can get really boring right away. Hey, I want to smash balls. But when you start to realize that it's a game right from the start, it's like, well, here's putting, here's chipping, and here's a seven iron. And by the way, there's the hole 25 yards away. And our goal is to get it in that hole in as few few chances, few opportunities as possible. It's like, oh, I see the challenge of the game now. You know, it's again, we've talked about this every other sport, you learn it on the field. So if I've never played basketball and you rolled out a basketball, I'm trying to figure out how do I get the basketball in the hoop? It's in, in a sense, it's intuitive in terms of what the rules are. And it's already, it's already a game in my mind 30 seconds in. Get the ball in the hoop. How do I do it? How do I do it? And so I think that's, that's kind of what you're seeing in terms of programs like Op36. And that's why it's so popular. And, and that's why it carries over for both juniors and adults. I love youth on course. I've done some stuff with them and I just think they're incredible. I know they're not, it's a different format. They're not necessarily teaching the game. It's more about access, but have you done anything with youth on course or seen their impact locally? I know they're starting to do some programs in New York. Yeah, they're starting to do some stuff in New York. I haven't personally seen a lot of their stuff. I've heard about them. I think a lot of it is just simply because, you know, again, going back to the glorified babysitting attitude of years ago is that it it was all on the range and do everything on the range. And you had to earn your way onto the golf course. The members at the course didn't want kids on the golf course or the public would be upset if you, if they saw kids on the golf course, if they were teamed up with juniors. And for me, it was the complete opposite. Like when I started doing things at, at Harbor Links and even at my old golf course before that, it was we're spending 50% of our time on the golf course, period, minimum. We are going to go out there. We're going to learn how to, I mean, like I said, we're, we're learning on the court. We're learning on the course. We're learning on the field. And so sometimes like when I, when I see these programs, it's like, yes, that's the way to do it. You know, the joke that I have with Ryan Daly and Matt Reagan of Op36 is they, they would joke around like, you're the one guy we don't ask to join us because you already do this. And so sometimes we talk about things where I'll say, hey, have you guys ever thought about this? I was wondering about this in my, in my mind. And they go, funny you should say that. This is what we're doing. And I'm going, holy cow, you just took my idea and put it on steroids or something yeah, like that. <laughs> you guys are amazing. So, <laughs> you know, I would think it's the same thing with, with youth on the, on the course. It's, 
it's excellent. I've been like, I always try and plug them where I can. I mean, First Tee has done amazing stuff. Youth on Course is kind of like, I don't know if they came out of nowhere, but they've essentially what they do, just so people know, I'll give them a quick plug. They partner with golf courses around the world now and they allow kids, they make agreements with the golf course that participating youth on course members, all they have to do is play $5 to play on the course. Their parents can go with them. And it actually is a mutually beneficial model where the courses have found that it actually makes them more money because parents end up coming with the kids. They buy snacks. They've got 140,000 members now and 1,800 courses, like 2 million in scholarships. Like they're incredible. I've gotten to know some of the people there. I've tried to donate a portion of my funds to them every year that I make for my business. And like I always tell people, if you want to go donate like 10 or 20 bucks to something in golf, like, Go do it to them because it's going Absolutely. like yep. directly to a kid who will get on a golf course for $5 and be introduced to this game. And as you said, James, the most important thing is I even say this to adults <laughs> you got to be on the course. Yep. Like there's only so much we can do on the practice tee. Like you need to be comfortable on the golf course and, and on, the, on the field of play, as you said. It's so important. Absolutely. It's super encouraging to me in general because even before the pandemic, I remember having a conversation with my old college coach who's at Columbia now. His name is Rich Muller. And I was just, I think it was like 2017 or 18. I was just asking him, he did a lot of junior golf work. I'm like, what's going on? He's like, you won't believe how like organized and all the things you're describing, James. Like it's super organized. Like kids are really getting involved. And that always gave me like hope for the future of golf because that's how I got into the game. I had a good experience. I was lucky enough to get a few lessons. I did go to a camp and that got me hooked for life. And it's so important to make that relationship early on. So like I wasn't as worried about the future of golf as other people were before the pandemic, but obviously that's kind of <laughs> giving this industry a shot in the arm, maybe forever. We'll see. I think like, and we're probably going to talk about this in a little bit where there's probably, at least from my experience, my eyes, might be a little bit of concern is the competitive golfer, the competitive junior and the unnecessary pressures that are put on them to perform. And so, you know, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but that's just something to throw in there. So with great development comes great responsibility, so to speak. Well, that's the problem I see in a lot of youth sports in general. Yep. I've got friends now whose kids, my kids, they're not obsessed with sports like I was as a kid. But when we were kids, like, you know, you played on a team and then like maybe the elite kids would go on a travel team. And now everyone's on a travel team and everyone's got to like, it's become such a huge business. Yep. And as you said, the competitiveness of it, I I imagine that's difficult to balance. But yeah, let's get into, I'm sure we have a lot of people who do listen to this show who have kids and they're interested in getting them into golf or if they are into golf, like some tips. I mean, you... I'm sure you've seen a lot at this point, good things and bad things and what you think is helpful to get juniors developing more or even kids interested in the game. So let's start with the good stuff. I'm sure there's some bad stuff. Let's start with the good stuff. Like what do you see as successful in general, like the type of practice or just the overall attitude and everything that goes into making sure that a child has a beneficial relationship with golf when they first take up the game and hopefully get interested in it. Yeah, I think one of the things that seems to be really a draw for kids to the golf course is little things like riding the cart, driving the cart. I mean, one thing I would I would mention to parents, some places are more lenient than others. So if you're bringing your child onto the course with you and you're, they're, you're riding a cart, 
just asked one of the people that are working there, is it all right if every now and then I just let them hold the steering wheel and let them do a couple of things? Because some places like, oh, yeah, sure, no problem. Other places will be like, no, 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 they have to have a driver's license. So you'll find out first. But a lot of these places that seem to be strict, they might also be like wink, wink as well. It's like meaning like if nobody's looking, you go ahead. But yep, letting them kind of ride around in the cart, drive the cart, let them hit the ball and tell them like, well, this club, this part of the club's hitting the ball. But what you're also doing is, is you're not correcting them. Just let them do it. Let them discover it. Yeah, I, I think it's so hard as a parent when you're seeing a kid just like mess around and hitting the golf balls. Your instinct is to start doing all the the junk that we adults do to each other, which is like, oh, keep your head down and all that stuff. And of course, parents mean well, but not everyone's going to be Earl Woods. You're not going <laughs> to raise the next tiger with your own instincts. And to your point, like, yeah, just I think letting them mess around, I, I think that's that's definitely step one. But I think the hardest thing in golf is, is like, how do you get past that initial stage? Because of all the sports you can try as a kid, we can kick a soccer ball. We could smack a tennis ball. Like there's a little bit more instant gratification, whereas golf can be a little bit more difficult to hit the ball properly and get that feeling. So how do you find you like bridge that initial gap and keep them interested? Because I imagine that's where a lot of kids just trail off. It may not even be, did the ball do what it was supposed to do? It may be just, you know, can you hold your finish? Can you do something like that? Like, oh, but I missed the ball three times in a row. I don't care. Did you do what I asked you to do? Did you hold your finish? Yeah. So look at you. You look like the PGA Tour logo. That's awesome. And the other thing I do a lot because kids are so visual nowadays is I take a lot of video. I use on form to communicate with the parents. So what I'll do is, is I'll take videos of them and I'll, and I'll show them their video. And I say, look at how good you look. Look at this. This is amazing. And I'm actually sending the parents the exact same video with us talking. So the parents are hitting, hearing the interaction with the child and they're getting involved without having to actually be there all the time. And so what they're starting to kind of get a sense of is, is like, oh, so it's not about the end result necessarily. It's about that I take care of what I was supposed to do. So it's like the other thing I've done is, is actually teach them to hit the ball like crap to begin with, meaning you're not allowed to hit a good shot. You have to top it three times in a row. You have to hit it to the right. You have to hit it to the left. You have to do all of these bad things. And what's what's nice about that is, is they get to laugh at the mistake instead of being scared of it. And what also happens is, is that I can say to them, all right, what did you think you did well on that? Well, I think I did this okay. I think this was pretty good and my step my setup was good. Right. And if you had if I gave you another ball, what do you think would make the next one better than what you just did? Uh well, if I did this and I did that. Okay, well, let's try it. And then they would do it and they immediately go, "Oh, and then they would look at the ball and the ball wasn't any better." I would just ask them, "Remember, what was it you thought you needed to do better?" Well, I thought I had to do this. Well, did you do it? Thumbs up, thumbs down. No, I did it. Okay. Then as far as I'm concerned, you get an A, right? Or you got a hundred on the test or whatever you want to say. Again, I'm not grading you on how the ball went. We're going to do that when you're Tiger Woods, but we're not going to do that now. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think adults should be taking some notes too. <laughs> I, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on here, and we'll probably get to this at the end, is I always felt that the way I practice and played as a kid, 
you know, the kind of ground skills I developed just by messing around, I think made me a better golfer as an adult. And I think a lot of adults lose sight of what it's like to be like a kid. And if we can get and a little bit element of that in practice with adults too. I think that's helpful. So that's that's one of the reasons I, I want to keep hearing this stuff because I think it's interesting for adults too. Like intentionally hitting a shot poorly, that's something that an adult wouldn't think to do but could be quite beneficial to them. I bet the hardest thing must be the technical stuff. I mean, we talk about that a, a lot on this show in general. How hard is it to resist because golf can become a technical game. Like how quickly does it transition to the, Oh, we want you getting here. Like, do you hold that off for a long time? Or are you just trying to get them to complete like more external tasks? When does that transition occur? Or does it occur at all in your teaching? Yeah, I think, I think for the most part, especially when you're talking to younger kids, doing a lot of external stuff, externally focused stuff. And once in a while you might say something or I might say something with regarding something, you know, I want you to move your shoulders a little bit more this way or something like that. But for the most part, I'll use a lot of external cues. And again, I'm learning just as much about them as they're learning about, let's say, golf or themselves, not just golf. So I might provide certain cues to them that might be internal because I want to see, do they understand what I'm saying? Or do I notice a change in how they're developing? Do, do they get really tense or self-conscious? In which case I say, okay, they're not, I got to back off on that kind of stuff. There's always sort of like, for lack of a better word, sort of this probing to figure out like what's the best form of communication. And the other thing that I do a lot is, and, and it's weird because I've actually been told by other teachers, don't do that. It's, it's a sign of weakness. And I, I think, I disagree. I think it's the opposite, which is, it, when I catch myself being that way, overly technical or trying to show how smart I am, I actually will stop it and say, my bad, I'm sorry. That's me being an idiot. <laughs> you don't need to know that stuff. That's me trying to show you how smart I am. Ha ha, laugh, laugh. Right? <laughs> and you can, you can sort of see like the tension relieves right away because they're like, oh, okay, because you know, that stuff was over my head. And you know, especially with juniors, how they are, they don't want to say anything. They don't want to say, I don't get it. And even if I've told them 90 million times, it's like, hey, if you don't understand something, throw the red flag. Hey, what does that mean? I don't get it. Right. But kids are so conditioned not to ask a question. Even if the teacher says no question is stupid, everybody still thinks their question is stupid. And so how you get that point across, it's like, you know, it's funny, like these kind of discussions that we're having, these can be like 15 hours long. What's coming through my head right now are all of these examples of me talking to someone and asking questions. And you could see the look of fear on their face, the fear of like, what does he want me to say? What's the correct answer? What am I supposed to say? And, and that's when I tell them, no, this is not school. I'm not your school teacher. I'm asking you a question because I want that hamster moving around. I want you to start being a problem solver. So there is no bad answer. There is no wrong answer. I'm just trying to figure out how you think of things. And there's, like I said earlier, there's there's no red pen in my hand and this is not a report card. I'm not going to mark it up here. We are going to take a quick break and we will be right back. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G Shoes, which is their first big release of 2024 
and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonderlux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G's shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. If you have, for the parents who have a kid, unlike mine, unfortunately, (laughs) what do you do if you do golf internet stuff for a living and you have a seven and a nine-year-old who won't play golf just to spite their father? What would you do in that situation? (laughs) Just kidding. But uh, yeah, we try. (laughs) I'm not forcing my kids. We got them out on the cart a few times and my daughter got pretty good, but they just don't. No one put a golf club in my hand as a kid. I, I came to it myself, so that's always been my philosophy on it. Right. If they wanted, it's just such a strange game to impose on on a child. I think because it is probably a little more peculiar than other sports. But if you do have that kid who shows interest, and let's say you're not getting the kid lessons yet, what ideas would you give to that parent? Whether they're just messing around in the backyard or at the driving range, or if they could bring them on the course, like. Do you any drills, like stuff that you think could make it? And the whole thing is fun and play, right? Yeah, I think it's one of those things where you're kind of like maybe having a long drive contest on one hole with your child. It's you hit a ball and then your child hits a ball and and have fun with that and give them. And, and especially if you as the parent are more experienced, a very experienced golfer, it's do it like, well, you get five chances against my one something like that. And just let them go at it and just say, you know, again, don't correct them. Oh, you fell back. Oh, you did this. That's why you didn't hit it better. Or something <laughs> like that. No, just here's another ball. Try it again. And you're like, oh, you just missed that one. Oh man, that was pretty cool. And you're like, oh, if you were, you know, 
man, you were one centimeter from out driving me by five yards. That was really cool. And, and just, just constantly doing that. Another thing you can do is if they're not really that interested, but they're with you, it's, you could be on the golf course, for example, and playing a hole and just say, Hey honey, can you do me a favor? Can you come on over here? Can you hit the shot for dad? Can you hit the shot for mom? What do you mean? No, I just want you to hit one shot for me. Can you do it for me instead? And just give them a club. And if they have their own club, just give them a club, let them hit the ball. Now they may get out of the cart like, oh, like that. Oh, yeah. I was in the middle of a good video a game and you oh, got to pause it and, or whatever. And they get out and they hit it. Well, even if they tap it forward five feet, five yards, it's like, okay, thanks. That's all I wanted. And just let them kind of like figure it out. And, and then you go and you finish the hole. But kind of getting them involved in that manner rather than trying to force them to play a hole with you, right? Just kind of little spoon feeding here and there. And because then they might come up to you later on and go like, dad, why did you make me do that? Oh, no, I just, I, I wanted your help on the hole. That's all. It's not like, oh, I wanted you to feel how great that game was or anything like that. It's <laughs> Play just, this game, please. Yeah, I'm dying. It, <laughs> so it, it's like, oh, okay. So I think sometimes the kids inherently feel like they're being forced to do something. And if you're kind of showing them, no, I'm not forcing you. I just wanted your help. I'd like, there, there's no inkling of like, I was really hoping you would like it. I really hope you would like, you know. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that, so. that's the hardest part is, is like the, yeah, some kids I, I've seen, you know, other friends with kids are just like immediately get the bug like I did and they're off and running. Yep. And then you have a lot of kids like mine who like, yeah, we introduced them to it. We got them some lessons in a clinic with their friends and they liked it, but they didn't love it. You know, my daughter likes dance more. My son likes baseball and basketball more. You know, that, that's the way it goes. But that's what I'm trying. I love the card idea. I always promise my daughter some snacks if she comes with me on the card. <laughs> Well, you, you know, what's interesting, what you just said is with, with a lot of our camps, especially our summer camps, that's what happens when the kids are coming early on, they're coming with their friends or like this week is golf camp and next week is soccer camp. And the yeah, week- that's what we did with them one summer. They got to do a clinic at the local course with right. some friends and they, and they liked it. They had a good week and then that was the end of it for them. And, and what's funny is, is in later years, as they were getting older, so these kids were like eight or 10 years old. Now they're 12, 14 their friends are playing golf and they're kind of like, you know what? I remember that camp from three, four, five years ago. And so that bug may not be right, right away, may not be instantaneous, but it's going to hit them somewhere down the road because their friends are playing golf. And I find that a lot over the last few years is I'm, the kids are coming up to me that are 15, 16 years old and they're going like, I don't know if you remember me, but I'm like, oh yeah, you're Ethan. I remember you. Yeah, you were the kid that was like, yeah, yeah, you remember with the funny socks. You were wearing the lacrosse socks. Yeah, you remember me. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? It's like, oh, I'm playing golf. My friends are playing golf. So we're playing. It was like, you really? I never would have thought you played golf. Ha ah. ha. People listening to this are probably wondering, like, lacrosse. They don't, they probably don't. I live on Long Island with James, and like, lacrosse is <laughs> something special. It's always been a thing on Long Island. Like, there's certain parts of the United States that are obsessed with lacrosse, and we're one of them. Yep. So, that's just something that competes for the attention of golf. What are your thoughts on, like, I'm sure me, like a million other kids, I started playing with a baseball grip. Like, that was just how I took up the game because I played baseball and I like to hold it that way. Like, what do you. I know there's probably no right answer to this, but like idiosyncratic stuff, like how long do you let it go? Like if the kid's got his own style and he's, or if he's interviewing, be like, yeah, let's try the overlap here. I think that'll help your ball striking. Like when do you pick and choose to intervene on stuff like that? Yeah. I don't see it as like, there's a moment when it should change. 
or you should fix it now. And I think what you're doing is it's the old make it their idea, not yours. And like a lot of kids play really well with a 10 finger grip, with a baseball grip. I mean, Bob Estes is a tour player, former PGA tour player who played with a 10 finger grip. And there are a couple others who still do it. I mean, even Tiger talked about at one point he would switch his grip to a 10 finger finger grip if he thought it fit the shot that he wanted to hit. So there is no rule book as 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 people playing cross-handed. There's some really good cross-handed players. And I think what you're doing is, is especially from the instructor's point of view is they've got a 10 finger grip. And then what you do is you say, all right, we know you can hit the ball with your grip. So what we're going to do is we're going to hit five balls with an overlap. We're going to hit five balls with an interlock. And you don't judge it. You just say like, well, hit five balls. Let them judge it. How were those five with the overlap? They all sliced. Oh, okay. How did it feel? Felt terrible. Okay. Well, let's try an interlock. Let's hit five balls. What happened there? Well, two of them hooked and two of them were pretty good and one I topped it. How did it feel? Uh, not as bad as the overlap, but still kind of weird. Okay. That's it. And then you just go on to something else and then let them do it. I say, and or you might even say to them, every now and then just do what we just did, hit three balls with each and just figure it out. Right. And they'll say, yeah, you know, I tried it. I didn't really like it. So I just stuck with what I like to do. Okay. No problem. <laughs> you, you should start, Adam, you should start doing this with adults. <laughs> like, it just sounds like more interesting way of me of teaching and not like, you know, what we expect as adults. I love it. Yeah, I mean, if someone says to me as an adult, I, I'm slicing it, I'll say, well, we no, need I shouldn't to close say that, the Adam. face. I know you're doing this already. I apologize <laughs> for that. Well, yeah, I'd say we need to close the face. And I'm I might more speaking say, in that jokingly toned, like you're talking like to a child. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. Okay. <laughs> like on a YouTube video. Yeah. <laughs> the one thing I'm always interested in is like the gamification of golf, making it fun and practice and stuff like that. And that's what I think adults should do more of that too. Any examples of like fun games kids can play like on the putting green, chipping, like the driving range, like some bread and butter stuff that you've, or at least like a point system, something like that. What's worked best for you in that arena? I mean, we've played a couple of games with regards to putting that have taken up a lot of time because the kids don't want to get off the putting green. U.S. Kids Golf had one, what was it, a cow pasture pool where you've got, you can have seven kids if you want playing this game, seven or eight kids. They each have five colored balls. Like, so they could all be orange, all purple, all white, whatever it is. And the green is a pool table, basically. The hole is a pocket. And one of the balls would represent an eight, like you could actually buy these balls where you would buy an eight ball, a golf ball that's an eight ball. That's the eight ball. And that's on the pool table, the green. Each kid has five balls. So if it's the, th- if it's the three of us, let's say, Adam, you have all of the green balls. You know, John, you have all of the red balls. I have all of the the yellow balls. So when it's our turn, we put one of our colored balls into the hole. If we make it in, we keep our turn. We go to the next ball. If we miss it, then the next person goes. And then what happens is, is after you get all of your five balls in, then you go for the eight ball. So obviously the first person who gets their five balls plus the eight ball in is the winner. And it's funny, like they play knockout, like where they try to knock the eight ball away they try to knock someone else's ball away from the hole. And, you know, we come up with all kinds of rules. Like if you hit it off the green, you lose your next turn or you have to put another ball back on the table, all kinds of stuff. And whenever somebody wins, what happens is that the, the kids are like, can we play for second? Can we play for third? And next thing you know, you just spend an hour and a half on the putting green and they're working on stuff. And I know for me personally, what I like to do 
especially in the camps, is we'll work on a skill. Like, let's work on speed control. And we'll set something up where very basic stuff. Here's an alignment stick. How close can you get the ball to the stick without touching it or having it go over and do that from different distances? We'll do that for like 10 minutes. And then we'll go and we'll play this game, for example. So we like playing a game that emphasizes the skill that they were just working on. So they kind of have this inherent moment of, oh, so that's why we're doing this, right? Kids are always inherently inquisitive is like, why do I have to work on this? Well, you have to learn how to control how hard or how soft you hit the ball so that you can get the ball in the hole or you can get it. If you miss it, if you at least you miss the hole, did it stop close to the hole? So the next time around, it's easier. So you got that. We have we have a putting game, 5T putting game, which, you know, yes, it's, it's sort of promoting gambling, but it's really good <laughs> where each one of us would have five T's. If I'm playing against Adam, he would have five. I would have five. We would start from two steps away from the hole. One of us goes, gets the ball in. Then the other person has to match. If we if I get it in, then we both go back another step. We do it again. If Adam misses, he has to give me one of his T's. And then he has to try again until he gets it. Every time he misses, he has to give me a T. Now, if he makes it, now I have to do it. Now I have to match him and get it in. If I miss that putt, then I have to give him a T. Then I make it. Then every time we both make it, we move back. And what starts to happen is the winner is is whoever has all 10 Ts. And that's an epic game. And, And you can do that on a flat green, or you can do that with a green that has a lot of break. And the kids just go absolutely crazy with that when they're like, another one, let's do another one. I got to get even. I can't, I can't lose twice like that. I'm having these visions of, so when I first took up the game with my friends, we played the local nine hole course, Dick Sills Park. I don't know if you ever played it, oh, yeah. games, but <laughs> great course, really fun. I'm just having these memories of we would play nine holes and then be waiting for our parents to pick us up and be getting dark. We'd have a contest. I think we were actually gambling real money at that point, but we, it was like so intense and I know my childhood friend, Ryan, who listens to the show can remember this, but we used to go like crazy on each other because it was just like so competitive and so engaging. And like, we just did it until it was dark at night because it was fun. Yeah. And that was like some of my best memories of like junior golf was just like messing around with my friends and being competitive in, in kind of like a playful way. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it doesn't have to be golf, golf rules. It can be another game where you're using golf to play the game. Like, like I said, I just, I just mentioned pool. We were playing pool, but it was with golf balls. So we've done things where we've done chipping games where I've actually took a turf paint and sprayed out a tennis court on the grass. And basically we would do some of these chipping games where you'd have to serve, get it over the net, so to speak. And, and we would score it like tennis, right? 20, like 30 love, 40 love, deuce. But at the same time, they were working on their chipping skills. They didn't even realize they were working on their chipping skills. I love it. We should do an adult children's camp where <laughs> we do all this stuff, but with adults. How's that for an idea? I used or is to it run out one there? of those. <laughs> is it out there? <laughs> I think Adam and I might have spoken about it years ago where it started as a joke where a couple of the parents would be like, Boy, I wish we could have our own camp. Like, well, yeah, it's fun. Like I get some beers involved, yeah. like, you know, make it a drinking game, whatever. But I think this would be a, like, imagine having like, I know there's like golf retreats where people do like these three day schools and stuff. And it's like, oh, we're going to look at your swing for 4 million hours. 
what if we just showed up and went crazy and did all these like ridiculous games and then played golf a couple of times? Exactly. That's what I used idea? to do in Santa Barbara. We used to have music there. You used to have, uh, what's the American game where you throw the beanbag into the hole? Cornhole. Cornhole. So set up loads of games with noodles and things like that. I started actually when I was put in position to do that adult group coaching, I started it, I would say very poorly. <laughs> because I didn't, I didn't set up all these elaborate games and things like that because I didn't think adults would be interested. I set up more things like, right, this is how you quantify your practice. And what I found was as I, I was actually pushed more into like, set up all these noodles and things like this, and I looked at it thinking, this is like a junior camp. Yep. <laughs> Surely the adults are going to are gonna feel a little bit weird about this, but they loved it. They absolutely loved it. You got to revive this idea. Yeah. Let's get it going. Add a few beers in, you sorted. Exactly. Not for you, James. (laughs) (laughs) Have a rolling bar. (laughs) So we talked about best practices. I'm sure you've experienced, and I'll leave it to your discretion, James, because I'm sure you've worked with a lot of different families at this point. I feel like things have gotten more serious now than, than they were, you know, 20, 30 years ago at the junior level with athletics. Like there's more specialization early. Like it's more, more serious early on. Like I'm thinking like, I got some buddies of kids in like ice hockey travel teams and they're going all around the country and it's really intense and they're nine years old. And I'm like, wow, things are like changing fast. Like, what are you seeing in golf is like that intensity happening like very early on with the competitiveness? Yeah, I'm I'm seeing it a lot with the younger kids and like you see it on some of the social media, like Facebook, some of the parent forums, you get parents asking, how do I get my kids signed up for tournaments? And it's like, well, your kid is five years old. Your kid is six years old. It's like, why are you worried about this? Then you turn around and you go and you realize, oh, wait a minute. They do have six tournaments for six-year-olds. What am I saying? So, you know, here's the link to sign up for it. So you're <laughs> yeah, just passing around the information. Like, like, but yeah, I mean, I think if you're signing up your kids and they're, they're six years old, seven years old, eight years old, and they're signing up for tournaments, it's what is the motivation behind signing up for the tournament? Is it to get them experience? to let them have fun, to enjoy the competitive side of it, and to find out about themselves, to kind of discover, all right, well, if I want to be better at this, I'm noticing my putting is is very weak. So if I want to be better at this, I better work on my putting. I better practice that more. So if you're doing that, that, that's fine. They're discovering themselves. But if you're doing it because you want them to be the number one golfer, you think that they're going to get a, a college scholarship in a few years, or as a lot of parents will say, I see something in them that they don't see themselves yet, that kind of stuff. Or they make those two or three swings that look really good. So everybody says they've got a lot of talent, potential. It's like, well, yeah, my dad's a really good golfer. He says, you know, our kid is really good. And it's, it's like, well, you know, it's, you know, the bane of one of the banes of golf is the really good golfer. That's a family friend or a family member. It's it, a lot of times with them, it's, it's like what I say to them is there's a big difference between playing golf and competitive golf. To know what the difference is, it's a big deal. And, and so, like I said, what is the motivation behind your child at a young age playing in a tournament? I know one student that I had, he had told me he wants to play in junior tournaments. I was like, okay, let's sign you up on a local one. And he went and he came in fifth place. I was like, hey, congratulations, man. You did so good. I was like so surprised at how, at how well you did everything. You, you didn't look nervous at all. And I said, so, so you feel like playing in more? He said, yeah, I want to play in next week's one. Okay. 
And without any hesitation, he says, I have a goal, right? And this kid's like nine years old. Well, what's your goal? Well, I came in fifth today. I want to come in third or better next time. Okay, well, what do you think you have to do to come in third? I got to work on this. I got to do better than that. Okay. And then he went, he took it on his own to do all of that. And then he comes in, he goes to the next tournament. He comes in third place. He, he reached his goal. What do you want to do in the next one? And, and he had another goal. Like, uh, I want to make sure that the worst I do is come in top five, because that's what I did in my first tournament. Shouldn't be worse than that. This is an eight-year-old, nine-year-old kid saying it. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just Set letting it go, time. letting it go, letting it go. Like, yeah, sure. You lead the way. You lead the way. And when he had a bad moment, it's like he was upset, but he wasn't crying. It's like, so how did it, how did it make you feel? Not happy, all this stuff. And we had a nice conversation about it. And the conversation ended with, well, I don't care how, how you did. You look like you were having a lot of fun out there. And so that story, I can tell you guys right now, that was my son. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I was wondering why you were so comfortable sharing it. <laughs> yeah, I'm talking from personal experience. It's, it's like, again, one of the advantages that I have is I have two boys. I have, they're both teenagers now. And so seeing how things, how they developed, you know, I think that's a big part of junior development is when you're teaching or when you're putting together programs, it's if your own child was in this program, what would you expect out of it? And I think if you ask yourself those kind of questions, you will get some some answers that you can't go wrong with. Yeah, I imagine, I mean, the problem I'm always thinking about even for adults is, you know, if you're at peace with the fact that you're never going to play professionally, that this is a should be a fun activity for anyone who plays it, a 10-year-old, a 40-year-old, and the game like tricks you into otherwise. And I remember some really bad moments as a you know, as a teenager, just losing my mind in high school matches and throwing my bag and acting like a complete idiot because I expected too much of myself. So I don't know, I'm not asking you to like solve all the problems for parents here, but just in your observations, like what has led to the kids who burned out and didn't continue with golf? Like, was it just too much pressure on the results? Like what type of stuff did you see that was kind of like hindering their path to staying in the game? I think it's too much pressure on the results. I think if we want to talk personal pressure, meaning the pressure they put on themselves, like I've had a couple of kids who stopped playing competitive golf and and I knew the parents. The parents were like, I don't know why he put so much pressure on himself. She put so much pressure on himself. It's like, we don't, we don't care what they do. I mean, they have other interests and having to talk to the kids and say, you don't have to be perfect. Why are you, why do you think you have to be perfect? And, and they're like, oh, that's the only way I can, you know, be any good at this or something like that. And like, blah, blah, blah. so there is that personal pressure that they put on themselves. Where they get that from, who knows? You know, it could be from the parents. I mean, the parents saying they don't put pressure, but maybe within closed doors, there is pressure. Who knows? Then there is definitely the outward parental pressure. Well, you know, little Jimmy, he keeps going across the line at the top. And every time he does that, he hits, he slices his drive. We've been working on it so hard and he still can't fix it. And, you know, or the parent that's the caddy at a tournament and the kid hits a bad shot. Oh, I can't believe you did that. Oh, like how many times have we gone over this and you're still doing this? It's so stupid and everything. And it's you get that now the parent now the child is more worried about what's the parental reaction going to be to the shot rather than the actual shot 
I think what happens a lot of times in, in certain circumstances is, you know, again, talking, and it sounds like we're piling on the parents, but it's, it's the parents, they see what their child is. They sort of see the potential, so to speak, and they see the end result, what they could be. But they don't understand what it takes to go from that point to the other point. That it's not five minutes. It's not a half hour lesson. It's not hit 20 balls. It's not hit a thousand balls. It's not the talent code. It's not 10,000 hours and all of that stuff. It, there's, there's something else. And it's focusing more on the process, possibly. It's not worrying about the result. Maybe it's sort of this mentality of, hey, you know what? Let me try this and see what happens instead of, I have to do this and the ball has to go straight. Yeah, I think that's got to be the hardest thing because even assuming that the parent is not a golfer, I mean, Adam and me spend a lot of time <laughs> explaining this game to people who are obsessed with it and what they can expect to reasonably. Oh, yeah. So to your point, like I don't necessarily always think it's the parent's fault. It's like they probably just don't understand golf that well and think it's a more straightforward process than perhaps like another sport. And it is, I always say to people, golf is different. I really do think it is. And that, that's got to be part of it is they just don't understand like what are reasonable outcomes in the game progression and stuff like that. And I'm, I'm assuming that's very challenging for you to be the person in between the junior golfer and the parent kind of being this, you know, intermediary explaining like, well, this is actually quite normal. You it's, know, it's the expectation. Yeah. Me. It's like, I just the other day had a parent talk to me about their kid at a tournament, not the other day, I'm sorry, in the fall. And it was like, yeah, you know, they did that. And and I looked at them and, and at the end of it, it's like, yeah, so that's why they did. That's why they shot this score. And I just comes like my only words to them were like, I don't care. I don't. And the parents just looking at me like, what? And I was like, I don't care. I really don't. You shouldn't care either. Why do you care? But, but, uh, uh, well, well. And I, and I, I just turned to the daughter and I just said, did you have fun? And they were kind of like, yeah. And I joked around about it. It's, it's like I said, until mom and dad started yelling at you, right? And they kind of like laughed and they're looking at, you know, oh, should I answer the, tr- should I say it? Yes. <laughs> and it's like just the kid's reaction was, yeah, you hit it right on the head, right on the head there. But being able to say to the parent, I don't care. Why do you care? Even to another child parent, I said, you realize nobody in this world cares that your child won that tournament except for you and your family. And you should care because that's a sense of personal pride for your family. But the rest of us in the world, we don't care that you're the fifth best seven-year-old kid on the New Jersey local tour for U.S. kids golf. You know, and it, like nobody cares. That's honestly one of the best takeaways any golfer can do. And I it took me probably 20 years to figure that out myself. Like no one gives a crap yep. what you shot. They don't. They care about themselves. I was laughing earlier because I'm th- I'm thinking we were talking on Twitter about how I'm a nihilist. <laughs> yeah. no, I saw that comment. Someone accused <laughs> they, they, someone said something nice about our show, and they're like, "Yeah, what do you say? Uh, you like it if you're a nihilist?" I'm like, oh, "Interesting." <laughs> well, I'm always mentioning it in the podcast, and <laughs> I remember, you know, when I was teaching juniors, and sometimes you would get a junior who's really upset at things, and I would, 
I would speak to juniors. I'd ask them questions as if I'm their buddy. I'd be like, why does it matter? And I'd basically get, it's so interesting to find out their goals or their reasons for playing the game. Sometimes they don't know until they're questioned enough. And, you know, it gets to the point. It's like, well, it doesn't matter. You know, that shot you just hit, it doesn't matter. And just, are you enjoying it? Are you having fun? No, then let's do something that's a little bit more fun. And yeah, it's just interesting. I was injecting subtle nihilism into my juniors when I was teaching them. <laughs> Here's another thing that popped in my head that I'm kind of curious about because you've probably you've now that you're teaching kids for almost 20 years. You taught before cell phones and iPads and TikTok and Facebook and Instagram, and now you're in it. Has that like destroyed their brains? Can they focus on golf? <laughs> Are they like checking their phones every two minutes for a new TikTok thing? You see them on their phones all the time. And I think it's one of those things you just have to keep talking to them like a third parent. I mean, a lot of my students have been with me for an extended period of time. Some of the more serious competitive juniors that I teach that are like 14, 15 years old, they've been with me since they were six or seven. So that's a long time. So I am like a third parent to them. And and so I do have license to say sometimes to them, get your ass out of the phone. It's like, come on, you guys spend more time on this or less time on that. Or I'll tell them, like, I'll talk to them like I would talk to my kids. It's like, are you watching stupid YouTube videos? Or are you watching TED Talks? What are you watching? Like, whoa, I'm like this video. And, and you know, but again, I, I am admittedly, <laughs> you know, I fall into that too. Like sometimes I'll see a stupid video on on something. And I'd be like, Hey, do you guys see this? Do you guys see this? Right? <laughs> or I'll forward it to them. And I'll say like, do you guys see this? Isn't this hysterical? How stupid can you be? Ha ha ha. But I think the point that I try to get across to them is, is you have to be responsible with the time that you're spending on whatever device you're on. And like, I know it sounds very old fashioned, but it's in the old days, it used to be, you can't, you can't watch TV. You can't play video games until you finish your homework. Right. You can't have dessert until you until you finish your vegetables. And so it's the same thing with this. You can't look at your phone and, and check out all these things until you've until you've done what is the work that's necessary, whether it's homework, whether it's practice, whatever it is, it's there is a, a place and time for it. You know, and I'm sorry I sound old fashioned, but to me that's the way it is. And if you're you're in my sphere, that's what I expect from you. And I think the kids for the most part, they understand that. Yeah, I mean that's the the struggle with everything. Like I struggle with with my kids. I mean the the gadgets are everywhere, and attention and my attention span's been destroyed. Actually, that's why I love golf more than ever. It's a time for me to unplug and not look at my phone. I try and keep it in my bag as much as possible because I want to focus intensely and, and absorb the experience. And I'm assuming that's more challenging these days with you know teenagers and, and the phones, but. Interesting to hear. I think too, what we start to do, because we're doing this with adults. So trying to get some of the kids, especially the older kids, is to use their phone in a productive manner. And and what I try to tell them is, you know, it's a training aid. And so if you're going to be on your phone, videotape yourself. What do you see there? Like, send me the video through the app, right? What are you working on? Are you working on what we were supposed to be working on, what I gave you to practice and stuff? And, and or even the kids that are not serious, it's the same thing. It's like, hey, what are you up to? If you go to the driving range, send me a video of you at the driving range, you know, make some funky swing, do do opposite swings or something like that. 
show me videos of you trying to hit the ball picker or anything like that. So they're doing things in that manner. It's, so it's like basically you're you're keeping the enemy close to you, so to speak. How good are golfers now at this level? Because my course hosted a big junior event last summer and I went out for a couple hours just to watch. And yeah, you know, these are not like, you know, our area is not like Florida or California. We're not feeding into the big division one programs, but we've got some good players and I'm watching these kids and it was like pretty windy out, like crazy, like trajectory control, distance control, like really well-rounded games. Like some of these kids were under par and of course they'd never seen before. And I think that's probably the hardest thing for like the parent or the kid who's like aspiring to play competitively. Like there's just so many more people doing it and they're so damn good. Like how much better are kids now at this stage than when you saw them, you know, in the beginning of your career and there's more of them probably, right? Yeah, there's definitely more of them. Yeah, the skill level is much better, much more finely tuned. But I think a lot of that is because we as instructors and, you know, and Adam is one of those guys who should get a lot of credit for that is the the preciseness of skill development now. It's like we actually are not just creating drills, but we're creating specific tasks and goals for specific things that we're trying to develop. And so I think the to be able to implement something like Adam's book into your program and do that, you can see what's happening when the kids do it. Their development is off the charts as a result. And a lot of times when you ask them, well, how'd you learn how to do that? They're like, oh, you know, I just, I just worked on it or I just, uh, you know, I, or sometimes they're a little bit more articulate. Like, well, my coach made me do this game where we did this and we did this. It's like, you know, I hit branches off of trees and stuff like that. And like, oh, okay, that sounds good. But yeah, definitely you notice that. The practice manual just crossed 50,000 copies sold. Congrats, Adam. Thank you. <laughs> Eight years in the making. So yeah, what percentage of your lessons would be technical? So this is how I used to split it up with the adults in, in training. I do some technique work, you know, some movement work with them. There'd be lots of skill work as well. So that might be hitting different parts of the face, hitting it right, left, shaping shots. And then there'd be some specific games. So maybe we get everybody into two teams and we actually play a pressurized game at the end of it. Is that similar to how you structure your junior lessons? Is there more areas to it as well? No, that that's pretty much it. And I mean, you you basically described it perfectly right there. And and I think that something that I try to get across to a lot of teachers that are teaching juniors, especially younger ones, is, is remember that they physically are constantly evolving. So to be too technical with the instruction is just it's a little bit of a waste of time. And it's also very frustrating, not just for you, but also for the student, because if they're going through growth spurts or they're just developing in general physically, it's like something that was really easy this week might not be easy next week and vice versa. And so I keep bringing up the example of one boy that I was teaching. He went on to play in college. So he, he turned into a really good golfer is that he came to me three successive Sundays in a row with three completely different swings. And, <laughs> and I, I remember posting it years ago on Instagram. It's like, how many weeks apart are these three swings? It's like, you would think they were like six weeks, six months apart. And he came one week with straight up in the air, as Ferris wheel-like as you could in your backswing. And then the next week he came in and he was basically Matt Kuchar. And then the third week he was like, of course, you know, Goldilocks, he was somewhere in between. 
But I would ask him like, so what did you change? What feel? And he goes, you know, no, I feel like I'm doing the same thing. I feel like I'm doing the same thing. It doesn't feel any different. And like when I would try to get him to be a little bit flatter or a little bit more upright, how did that feel? Oh, that felt really weird. That felt really different. Oh, okay. <laughs> you want me to practice that? Then he comes the next week and it's completely different. How does that feel? Well, it feels the same. So it's like that right there is in a nutshell. It's like, yeah, don't waste too much time on that kind of stuff when you know the kids are evolving and developing. And you have to tell the parents that too. It's They'll come to you like, well, we noticed little Jimmy's jumping in his swing. And I'm like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Well, that is one thing I was going to ask you, because I know there are lots of technical traits that juniors tend to have. And lots of parents worry about them. Like, you know, they may be a little bit more early extension, maybe a stall flip. And to me, that's all I look at that with juniors and I think, well, that's just going to go when they get older and bigger and stronger. And it's not necessarily something to worry about right now. You know, the jumping thing as well. Lots of kids kind of jump up there on their toes. And, you know, it's just because they're swinging an object around their body that's way too heavy for them for their given strength. Would you kind of agree with that? Is that kind of something you see as well? Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. And I will tell the parents, you don't have to worry about that. Now, what's important, again, communicative skills is when you're talking to the parents or you're talking to the kid and you treat it like, ah, don't worry about this, uh, like that. Well, it kind of sounds like you don't want to deal with it. You know, don't bother me attitude and like, ah, you know, but if you tell, if you kind of back it up with a little bit of information and I'm talking about legitimate, you're not trying to BS them, but you're saying like, listen, this is pretty common among kids, especially of their age group. And what's happening is, is that they're not quite strong enough to deal with the pressures of the swing. The club is a little bit heavier than it should be, but you'll start to see that as they get a little bit stronger and they develop, that will slowly go away. It'll dissipate as their lower body catches up with their upper body or vice versa, depending on their body type. And, you know, and sometimes what I'll do is, is I'll show them videos of past students that went through the same progress. Sometimes I'll use Justin Thomas as an example, where he used to jump and, you know, his hips would spin out and his feet would be ice skating all over the place. And now you look at him and he's, he's much more stable in his swing. Well, you know, he didn't suddenly go from 135 pounds to 275 with muscle. It's just, he just is getting older, more mature, his body's developing. So using those examples and kind of showing, allaying the concerns of the parent. And sometimes what I'll say to the kid in the lesson with the parent there is like, listen, this is what you're going to be doing. You don't have to worry about it. If you notice, you still play very well with it. All right, let's focus on something a little bit different. And as you get older and you start to get stronger when you're 14 years old, you'll start to notice that your feet are not going to be skating around as much as they are now. So you have something really to look forward to as you get older. And I think that kind of way of talking to them kind of calms them down and shows them that you're trying to help them out. You're on their side. Do you use technology a lot as a diagnostic tool? Yeah, yeah, I do. I'm, I have a lot of technology and it, it's usually on. It doesn't mean I'm using it 24-7. It you may just, just be on. Yeah. It's there if you need to refer yeah. to it. And then how are you using that? So let's say you've got, what, what are you using? I'm assuming a launch monitor. What else you got? Yeah, I've got a four-side quad. I've got smart-to-move 1D balance plates. I use... Uh, 4D motion, 3D stuff. And yeah, that's pretty much it. So give me an example of like, let's say you noticed something and then you, you looked at 
the readouts, whether it's the quad or, or the force plate. Are you showing them what's going on there with what's on the screen or are you just saying something totally irrelevant to get them to do what you want them to do based on what you saw? Yeah, I think, again, it's just opinions. It depends on the student. If I feel like they can handle the information and by that, I mean, I've educated them already. Hey, this is what this means. Like, I don't want to throw the screen at them. Right? Yeah. And well, oh my God, adults, what's all this? It looks like- I mean, adult, adults can't handle that yeah, much of the looks time like, either. So it's like, if I've already talked to them about stuff like, this is what path means, and this is what we're trying to do. And here's the reason why when a number is this number or higher, it could lead to this. And what, so we're trying to get the number lower or vice versa. So if they already have an idea of what that is, then I would show it to them. But if I haven't prepped them for that, I'm not going to say, hey, come here, look at the screen. See how this says this. It's I'm going to tell them, listen, can you just feel like you're just going a little bit more that way when you're swinging? And let's see what happens. And then they hit three or four balls. And then I'm the one looking at the screen going, oh, that didn't work. (laughs) Let's try something else. Or, oh, that's a little bit better. Okay. Hey, what did you feel like you were doing when you did that? Oh, I felt like, okay. And that's important too, is that you're asking them, what did they feel like they were doing? Because you may have provided the initial direction where you said, I want you to feel like you're swinging more to the office door on the left. And then they do it. And then you kind of see the improvement that you wanted, but you have to ask them, what did you feel like you were doing there? And that person might say, it felt like I was doing this. Okay. So basically what they're doing is they're saying, instead of using your words, James, swing to the door, let's use my words, right? So your vocabulary, what you're saying should be based around what your student is saying, not what you're telling them to do. Has there, I'm only bringing this up because there was this video, I don't know if you saw it, this 11-year-old girl who was swinging 110 miles an hour popped up on Twitter the other day. And of course, it, you know, some people were like amazed by it and others were like, oh God, you're going to tear her back apart. Yeah. So I'll let the comments be what they'll be. I comment. Has, <laughs> yeah. I mean, to me, it seemed like, you know, they were training her the right way. I'm like, let's just say that was a bad thing. Who knows? Is there more of a push now that like the cat's out of the bag with distance and speed? You know, a lot of I've heard from other coaches, like we want to just teach kids to hit the ball as far as they possibly can and then worry about stuff afterwards. Like where where are you? I'm sure it depends on age, but like what's been going on with that? Yeah, I mean, I'm into the speed development too, but I think that we have to be careful because people just automatically think speed, 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 get the number as high as you can. What I'm trying to do is just get the number as high as you can, knowing that we actually are never going to use that number. So just to use that girl as an example, again, this is not a, I'm just using her. So her speed was 110 miles per hour. Let's say we were maxing out, like, I don't care where the ball goes. I just want you to get that number as high as you can, swing as fast as you can, 100%. And it's 110 miles per hour. What I'm thinking of is that's the max that her body can handle. I want her body to understand that that's the border, but there's a good chance that she will never ever swing or she shouldn't really swing that fast in real life. There's going to be some drop off, right? Because now we're looking for performance, controlling the face a little bit better. She's not going to move the same way. He's not going to move the same way. So in reality, tournament speed might be 106, right? But you know, one of the things about overspeed training is 
getting the body more comfortable to work at a speed as long as they're not getting injured, right? And so if 110 is her speed, then that's fine. Or you might look at it the other way for that girl's like, so she's measuring 110 with a really nice golf swing. So her max speed might actually be 116 in reality, right? We don't know that. It's just one video on this one girl. But you know, that's what I do with my students is just getting them more comfortable. So what happens, one of the things I noticed is that with a couple of the girls I'll use as an example, their swing speed, when they max out, let's say is 103, 106. And their game speed used to be 91, 93 if they were playing in a tournament or out on the golf course. Now what's happening is their max speed is still at 103, 106. But when they go play in a tournament or they go play on the course, it's now 97, 98. So they're getting more comfortable, so to speak, in their own shell. So there always has to be this tempering in terms of speed. Yeah, it's important. I mean, even for adults, when I play in tournaments, I can't. There's always that balance where you say like, okay, what am I giving up and strike location or perhaps face control? There's always going to be a trade-off. And when you go at 100%, I mean, for me, it's always strike that goes first. I just can't strike it as well. And then that extra three or four miles per hour wasn't worth it because I lost it in ball speed anyway. I'm kind of curious if Adam's ever done this where, like I've said with kids, it's like, okay, in this ball, you guys swear to me, you're going to swing as hard as you can, as fast as you can. You're just going to go all out. And they hit it. And then they say, was that as fast as you can swing? And they go, no. And it's like, well, I just told you, I just asked you to swing as fast (laughs) as you can. And you're admitting that you left still something in the tank. So that kind of goes to what I was just saying. It's like, even sometimes when you are trying to max out, you're not really maxing out. Have you gotten any guidance from like TPI and stuff like that on what is like what you can and can't do? I mean, I think a lot of people were worried about you know, younger kids lifting weights now and realize like that that's not that big of a deal. It actually could be a good thing for a lot of teenagers. Like, is there any guidance from like TPI or other organizations being like, hey, based on this age level, let's stick to this stuff. And as they get older and mature more, we can do this. Yeah. I think a lot of the guidelines that they've put out in terms of developmental windows, stages of development are really, really good because this is not something some guy sitting in a room just came up with, oh, let's just do this. Like they have a tremendous amount of research behind the stuff that they've published in terms of these windows of opportunities. And what's great about it is, is you don't even have to be a TPI certified instructor to see the stuff. It's readily available on their website. And so I always encourage people to check that out. But yeah, I get a lot of the information from them. And I also check up on it. And like I have my own physio guy that I have worked with literally for 20 years. You know, Mike Hoxson's the guy that I spend a lot of time with and and I'll reference him a lot. Like if I find something, I'll ask him, what do you think of this? Or it's like, I may just test him out and just say like, you know, does this sound like a good idea to you or a bad idea? And if he goes against it, I want to know why he thinks so, because he usually comes up with a lot of good thoughts. Basically, it's like the equivalent of taking the bike apart and seeing how it works, right? So he'll come up with a lot of no, that's not too bad. But what you have to watch out for is the potential for that. This could lead to injury. So be careful of this and be careful of that. I mean, do you see a lot of injuries in golf, like for kids? Like, I don't recall even ever. Okay. I mean, it's really the contact sports probably gets more injuries just because like kids, you could do stuff with your body that like 
as a 40 year old, you obviously can't, you'll wake up sore the next day. Yeah. Do you see a lot of like non-contact golf injuries? Yeah, there are some injuries. Like I can think of a couple injuries, even a couple of my students went through where like they would feel a pop in their shoulder or something. But the thing is, is that luckily it's one of those things where we saw it coming, believe it or not. And it is one of those things where you're saying, hey, listen, you can't move this way because if you keep moving this way, you're risking something. You've got to work on moving this way instead. And of course, like some kids, they're resistant to it. Like, oh, it feels weird. It feels different. And then sure enough, something happens and it's like, yes, that's exactly what I warned you about. And the parents are like, yep, yep, you warned us. Yep, you're right. What should we do? And just moving on from there, you know, that's happened a couple of times. I've seen other students where they've gotten injured because they were told to do something. And I don't know if it's a case of, they were actually doing what they were told to do, or they were doing their interpretation of what they thought they were supposed to be doing. And they end up injuring a wrist or hurting themselves in the back or the shoulder, like I said, something like that. I remember when I was a junior, the X Factor yes. philosophy came out. And I, as a junior who didn't hit it out, out of his own shadow, I was like, I will do anything to hit the ball farther. And so this stuff that I read said that if you restrict your hip motion and create a bigger shoulder turn, you'll be able to hit it farther. So obviously me being me, I'm like, right, well, if a little is is good, a lot must be better. So I just <laughs> locked my hips in place and tried to turn my shoulders 120 degrees. I was probably able to do it as a kid because I was so flexible. But my instructor, John Peters, he said, Adam, you shouldn't be doing this. And I just went against him because I'm like, I want to hit it farther. And it didn't It didn't make me hit it farther. But I, I think I woke up with a sore back a few times. I'm like, oh, maybe I should taper maybe that was bit. the x factor sore back yeah, yeah. <laughs> i just didn't tell you about that up front so my last question idea is you know obviously we have a lot of adults listening to the show who want to get better at golf do you find yourself with you know you don't exclusively teach juniors you teach adults as well do you find yourself using the same methods that you discovered getting juniors better on adults? Like, what do you think we have to learn from the way kids play and the skill development, all that stuff? Thoughts on that? Yeah, it, it's a great question. And one of the things I have thought about is get your adult ego out of the way. It's <laughs> because what happens is one of the things that's funny about it is, and no, this is not a pat on my back. This is factual is exactly what you're saying. It's when you treat your practice more like when you were a kid, you will get better. I mean, there's a reason why these kids are getting better and there's a reason why you're going to get better. And it's, I find it kind of a little comical sometimes that some of the adults that don't come back were actually getting better. But part of the reason why they didn't come back is because they thought, oh, he's just treating me like one of his juniors. It's like, no, I'm treating you like a student. It doesn't matter how old you are. It's like, you're getting better. And it is that adult mentality of, I have to know all of the technical details. Like you were just asking about, do you show them all of the stats? It's like, they have to know all of that stuff. They feel like that's important for them to be better. And maybe it's not, but yeah. yeah. yeah I think as adults, we see it as more like linear and straight line stuff where the kid can just see outside the box and be more creative and playful with it. Yes, But yeah, adults... I think that's what holds us back is especially adults who take up the game later in life is that 
they expect it to be similar to other walks of life, perhaps other hobbies they took up. And it's like, oh, I do this, this, and this, and I get that, that, and that. And it doesn't work that way in golf. Yep. And you have to be willing to be a little more patient and, and get outside of the box a bit. But yeah, I, I think that you know, a lot of the stuff you described earlier in the episode, just the questions you're asking, the way of thinking can be incredibly beneficial to adults as well. Just because, yeah, we get stuck in this like... I think just people like want straight lines and they want it to just be a certain way. And they, you know, golf can be so frustrating because sometimes what you put in and if you don't put in the right thing, you don't get the right thing out. And that is all the emails that I'm sure all three of us get all the time from people. (laughs) I did all this work and it didn't get better. You know what? That's a great point. And like one of the things that I tried to tell everyone is just that, look, the hard work that you're putting in doesn't guarantee that the next shot is going to be perfect or the next shot's going to even be good. What it's guaranteeing is that your rate of success is going to be higher as a result, but it doesn't mean everything is going to be perfect, right? And so it's, you may do everything exactly the way you intended, the way you were supposed to and hit the ball right into the water, right? So it's accepting the outcome regardless, as long as you you were able to engage in the task and carry it out, that's what's important. Lot to think about. Adam, we're ending our time here. Do you have any closing questions for James? Yeah, some good ones from Twitter. Someone asked, what's a good number of lessons per month for junior golfers of different ages? Do you have any rough guidelines on that? I think it just depends on, you know, the reality of it is, is your budget, right? Can you afford the lessons? If you're going to get like one or two lessons a week, are they lessons or are they replacing your practice? If they're replacing your practice, then it's not a good idea, in my opinion right? Unless you can afford it. In that case, then that's fine. But whatever it is you're learning in the lesson is remember that you haven't learned anything. You're just have been put on the road to guidance to what it is you should be doing so that eventually you will learn better, you will improve. But a 30 minute lesson, a one hour lesson didn't fix anything. It just got you on the path. How many lessons could be once a week, twice a week. It could be once every other week, could be once a month. The best thing to do is figure out, like I said, what your finances are. The other thing you need to do is, is ask your child. So a lot of times I've had parents ask me, we want to book a one-hour lesson. Yeah, but your child is like nine. You sure they can handle? Oh, no, 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 no. Because they immediately think one hour is going to be better than a half hour. But I always say, let's take a half hour. Let's do a couple of half hours. And what they should find out from their child is, is what did the child say? So if the child thought, yeah, the half hour was really good. I really liked it. Okay. If the child says, yeah, you know what? I wish it was longer. I wish we could do more. Then you can get an hour lesson because that's kind of a sign that your child is going to stay engaged in the lesson, right? We're talking about attention span here. Yeah. I think it's, I was lucky enough that my parents supported me when I got interested in golf and I got lessons from a guy who was just awesome and he made it fun for me. And that was like, after about six months of messing around on my own and getting okay at the game, like that was a really important step for me. And like super, it was, you know, I guess my point is, is that if people can do it, like working with someone like James is I've referred a lot of people to you in the Long Island area, just because it, I think it can just, I mean, even for adults too, it just can really help the relationship with the game and get them headed on the right path. I'm not to say that some kids can't be self-taught. It's just, 
there's a lot. I keep saying the word peculiar in golf when you take it up. It's not that it's just not the same as shooting hoops at home <laughs> or messing around playing catch with a baseball or football with your buddies. It's just not. And I think it is one of the athletic pursuits that you should get some help at some point, whether it's once a month, you know, twice a month. It is very helpful, in my opinion. And I think the point that I try to get across more than any other is, is we always look at success, right? Every sport, success. Golf is a game that's designed for us to fail, right? And it's like, because if it was meant to be easy, if it was meant to be successful, then every hole would be straight. It would be as wide as like a runway. There'd be no bunkers. The holes would be five feet wide, et cetera. And I'm talking about holes as in the pin, the actual hole. So it's designed for us to fail. Where do architects put the fairway bunkers? Exactly where we land our drivers, right? That's where they're put. So, you know, the people that play better are the ones that accept their failures, that accept the bad shots and learn how to move on and accept and deal with them. Not like, oh, I've got to be perfect. Often hard for a child to do and an adult. <laughs> I've got another one. Club selection for juniors. Are there any interesting That's a painful like question. That? That's a yeah. painful question because these damn kids keep growing. Well, yeah. that as well. Yeah, I'm thinking, so, <laughs> do, they, do they need a full set? But yeah, there's the other, the growth spurt element to it as well. Yeah. The interesting thing about like getting a, let's talk about the full set first. It's when you look at the lofts on a junior set, the loft divisions are the same as an adult set, right? Three to four degrees. The problem is, is the kids at a younger age, especially don't have the speed to generate the distance differences that an adult would with the same four degree difference. So whereas adults are probably getting, let's say, 10, 12, 15 yards of difference, juniors are getting four to eight at most. So the idea that they need a full set, unless they're one of those kids on the upper end of the spectrum in terms of speed, they have a tremendous amount of speed for their age, they really don't need a full set. In terms of what kind of clubs to get, I know a lot of parents, what they'll do is is they'll cut down sets. and, And I tell them, please don't do that because when you're cutting down the shafts, you're, you're in a sense making them stiffer. I always use the example of if you're in a Chinese restaurant, you take the chopsticks and break them in half. Notice how, the, how they get harder to break because they're getting shorter and effectively they're getting stiffer. Well, that's what's happening to the club when you cut them down. In terms of the length of them, you know, I believe in the US kids golf idea that you grow out of the clubs, not grow into them. So a lot of times what will happen is parents will buy the next largest set so that, oh, we'll save money, the kids will grow into them. But what you're doing is, is you're basically misfitting your kids to clubs that are too long, too heavy. They start developing poor habits that it could possibly lead to injury because they're making compensations. So it's better that the clubs are actually, believe it or not, too small than too big. I've seen that US Kids site. That, that's a pretty good guideline for people to look. I, I remember they had some measurements on there and stuff like that. That's a helpful website. I, I remember looking at it a few years ago. When would you start tracking score with players or even getting a handicap? You know, to be honest with you, I really don't think that much about handicap. To me, that's an adult thing. Or if you have that rare junior that's really serious and they want to play in the US Junior Qualifier right? Those kind of things. Yeah. Then they're establishing a handicap. But in my world, I'm like, I'm not really worried about that. In terms of score, well, it depends on what the person considers score. Are you talking about score in terms of, hey, I'm learning the game? Well, what's your score from 25 yards? What's your score from 75 yards? Right? So 
a person's score from 75 yards might be the same as Adam's score from 375 yards, right? They're both getting four from there, but, you know, so like, what does that mean? Now, if you're talking about real score playing 18 holes or nine holes and you're playing from a certain set of tees, well, then it becomes, are the tees age appropriate for the junior? I've had parents tell me like, yeah, you know, my nine-year-old son, we played from the men's championship tees the other day and he shot 127. That's really good for his (laughs) age group, right? And it's like, I wouldn't know because 137 is still 137. It sucks. It's like, it doesn't matter. (laughs) So it's like, what you're doing is, is you're lowering, you know, the standards of your child. It's like, oh, so 137 is good. No, it's not. Right. So it's like, put him up at 50 yards. And what does he shoot? Put him at a hundred yards. What does he shoot? I mean, if, if dad is hitting his driver 220 yards and your son is hitting their driver at a hundred yards, why are you guys only one tee box apart? That doesn't make any sense, right? So if your driver seven iron combination gets you at 375 yards, well, what's your child's driver seven iron distance on the same hole? That's where you should put them and have them tee off from there and then see driver seven iron, driver seven iron, how do you score, right? So that has a lot to do with it as well. But when would I track it? I would track it early, especially if you're doing that, the op 36 stuff where you're going 25 yards and in. I mean, I know we do that with the junior camps for some of the beginners where we say, but what we do is, is remember par is a dangerous word. And so what I try to get the kids to do is set their own personal par. All right. So I'm putting them at, you know, I'll just say a hundred yards. All right. What did you get from a hundred yards? Oh, I got a seven. Okay. Let's do it again. What'd you get? Oh, I got a six. Okay. So their personal par is going to be like six or seven, not three on the scorecard. They have to create a new scorecard for themselves. Right. And I'm trying to get them to understand. It's like, yeah, your goal is to try and do better the next time. So the next time, if you get a five on this hole, you did better, right? Yeah. Cool. Let's try that. Yeah. They got the whole rest of their lives to torture themselves with par and handicaps. (laughs) (laughs) Plenty of time for that. You guys will probably understand this question more being parents. There's obviously a battle between wanting them to be good, wanting them to be the best they can. Why? I don't know. As a nihilist. Yeah. And then nihilists also don't care about stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Goals. So the other thing is making them enjoy it, which I do care about, even as a nihilist. So maybe I'm not a nihilist. There's another word for it. So yeah, there's this battle between, you know, wanting to improve and wanting to enjoy it. Can you talk about that? I don't know what the question is exactly, but I suppose where's that balance point between pushing your kid to do better, if at all, or just letting them go on their own regard but you know obviously if you've got a kid who may have talent even though there's probably a one in a thousand or one in ten thousand chance of them actually making anything of it yeah where's that balance point would you feel yeah that's a really tough question because it's basically what's first the chicken or the egg i think in general terms you're trying to get them to enjoy the game first and i know as a coach when i talk to the kids little kids big kids it doesn't matter it's i'm telling them Listen, if you really like this game a lot, then you're going to enjoy the suffering later on, right? You're not going to enjoy the suffering if you don't like something. So learning how to enjoy the game, the joys of the game, the challenges it brings up, to me, that's first. And then later on, as they get a little bit more serious, you're kind of tempering it and saying like, listen, there's no two ways about it. You're going to have to do this a lot. You're going to have to hit a lot of balls doing this or whatever you're... 
you're going to have to work this out and you're going to fail 98% of the time, right? But inherently at the base of that is, is remember that you're working at something that you love, that you enjoy, right? And the only way you're going to get better is, is if you work your way through this. And I've had that conversation with a couple of kids where I've said, this is a two-year process for you, or this is a one-year process for you. And at the end of that time period, you're either going to come out like feeling like you're Superman, you're indestructible, or you're going to come out like needing 16 analytical sessions to get you through the day. But you know, we have a good laugh about it, but they understand. It's like, yeah, it's not always roses, so to speak. It also probably depends on the personality of yes, the kid too. Yeah. Like I'm thinking my children, like my daughter is like way more intense about getting better at something kind of like how I was as a kid, puts a lot of pressure on herself to like do her cartwheels properly and, you know, probably have to like rein that in a bit. That she doesn't go too crazy where my son's the opposite. He's like more happy to participate and he's not, he's just not as intense as a personality as her when it comes to like getting better at something. So yeah, that's what's interesting about kids is like, they're all, I mean, adults too, they turn out to be different people, but I imagine that's a difficult part of your job is also like suiting the personality and and then that kind of drive of the child. Yeah, you know, it's like the football coach saying like Bill Parcells used to always say some guys needed a kick in the ass and some guys needed a pat on the back. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You got to figure it out. And I mean, I've told kids sometimes it's like, you can do better. And if you don't, that's on you. And I've also told kids, it's like, what do you think is the worst word in the English language? And it's regret is you don't, you know, I don't want you waking up 37, 38 years old, you're shaving or you're brushing your teeth. And all of a sudden you look at yourself in the mirror and go like, oh, if only I, oh, maybe I could have, maybe I could have been. You describe every morning for me. (laughs) (laughs) We're we're talking from personal experience. Yeah. (laughs) The X factor did him in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if I didn't do the X factor, I, I always try and tell the parents to make your kid enjoy it. Number one, yeah. that's number one goal. Because if that kid enjoys it, they're probably going to have a lifetime in that sport. They'll probably have more motivation to make themselves better. They'll seek betterment themselves rather than I've seen so many kids in my lifetime of coaching that had potential and air quotes or were really good at one point grinding it out but they just you could see they didn't love it they saw it almost as a job even as a kid and those kids they can get to a good level maybe scratch even plus handicaps at age 15 but then they just disappear off the face of the planet because it was never their motivation right really it was never them doing it and it's, it's a pointless then you've just wasted <laughs> you wasted your time agreed yeah yeah, I really, I think golf is really a, it's a take it or leave it proposition because <laughs> just the time required and if the kid or even the adult isn't just has, doesn't have a passion for it. like And sometimes they need to hear that it's okay because, I mean, I use the example of one boy that I taught who was really good. I mean, he was amazing and he, he could have been division one college, definitely division three college. And he told me, I asked him about it one day. It's like, what about college? And he finally said, it's like, I have zero interest in playing in college. And I was kind of surprised, but I, I'm like, I wasn't like mad about it. I was like, really? And then he told me his reasons. And I was like, wow, those are really good reasons. He has other interests and he doesn't want golf and college taking time away from them. I quit my college team three weeks yeah. after I started playing. I also, I also sucked. Let me just 
say that I was very bad, but I realized I didn't want to play golf. I'm like, I'm not, this is not for me. I'm out. <laughs> you know what? He, he was afraid to tell his parents because they'd spent money on lessons and everything. And I told him, I guarantee your parents are going to support you. I promise you that. And if they don't, I'll be the one that stands in between you and your parents in the argument. But I'm telling you, they'll be fine. And he went and he told his dad, it's like, I'm not interested in playing in college. And his dad was like, what do you want to do then? He's like, oh, I want to do this. And his dad was like, okay. That was it. That was literally the end of the conversation at home. And he, the kid came the next week and he was like, oh my God, you were right. Dad was so chill. You know, <laughs> it's like, yeah. And the great thing is, is that about this game is that he can come back to it five years oh. later, 10 years later and pick up where he left I, off. I told him his life is set because he, he could shoot lights out. He, he could shoot. Yeah. What an advantage that'll be for him exactly, later That's in exactly life. what I told him. <laughs> that's the beauty of this game. Yeah. That's why it's unlike other, you know, we can't play pickup basketball till we're 80. <laughs> Well, James, we appreciate the time. Hopefully we gave the parents listening to the show some ideas, or if you're not a parent, maybe you got some ideas on how to get better at golf from a child's perspective. Where can everyone find you? You can find me on Twitter, James Hong Golf. You can also find me on Instagram, same thing, at James Hong Golf. And I know there were a couple of questions on Twitter and it's like, you know, feel free to just shoot me a question. You feel like we didn't answer it tonight. I'm going to go on Twitter later and answer some of those questions. So if you, if people have more, go ahead. I think we got some most. So yeah. 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 We have a thread on there and just remind people where you teach again. Yep. I'm at Harbor Links golf course in Port Washington, New York and Long Island. I got to go back there. I only played it once and I enjoyed it. I remember I had a crazy round. I shot like, it was like 15, 20 years ago. I think I shot like a 50 something on the front and then had the most amazing turnaround of my <laughs> life. And I was thinking to myself, like, I can get back into golf. But I remember that day. It's a fun course. But yeah, if you're in the New York metro area, just like our friends at Pete's Golf, James is a, a friend of theirs too. He's the guy to go to if you've got a aspiring child in golf. So yeah, James, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thank you, James. Thank you guys for having me. I've known you guys for years. Big fans. Thanks. Same. Same. We're just a couple of nihil. Oh, Adam's the nihilist. <laughs> I'm going to start referring to that now. Adam, where can everyone find you? AdamYoungGolf.com. Or you can go the book that we talked about, the practice manual, the ultimate guide for golfers. That is available on Amazon. And John, where can people find you? You can find my book, The Four Foundations of Golf, also on Amazon. We were just talking earlier. It's nice to see both our books. We're self-published indie authors and we're we're up there with some of the all-time greats. So let's just give ourselves a little pat on the back. And, and really, the people who listen to this show, you guys have all bought our books and supported us. So thank you for that big yeah, time. Thank you. I'll pat you guys on the back. It is really cool when a student comes up and says, you ever heard of this book? And I got a big grin on my face going, yeah, I think <laughs> I know who they are. <laughs> I think I know who he is. <laughs> The guy in his basement, another guy in a furry sweatsuit shirt that you're wearing right now. We got to take a picture of that sweatsuit and get it on social media. Hey, my gas is expensive these days. <laughs> All right, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Appreciate your feedback, and we will see you very soon with a new episode.